Welcome back to the Common Good Podcast, a conversation at the intersection of remembering, belonging, and place. I am Rabbi Miriam Cherlinchamp, and I'm your host for season three. For this season, we are using the relationship between Walter Brueggemann, Peter Block, and John McKnight as a model for how the common good shows up in local, tangible, relational ways. This episode will pick up from last week as it continues to circle around and deepen the conversation about land, story, and debt. It begins with a discussion on Wendell Berry's thoughts on land. What are our thoughts about the place that land holds? Basically what I know about that I learned from Wendell Berry, that led me to think that the land is not to be used, but it is to be cared for and enhanced. So that leads to all the environmental questions. The second pair that I put down of inhabited and not occupied really grew out of my understanding of Naboth's vineyard, of of the Mm. peasant and the king who wanted to seize it. The king thought it was simply fungible property, but Naboth said, this is my inheritance. It's not negotiable, it's not tradable. Those distinctions represent a huge defiance of agribusiness, which simply believes that the land is to be uh, ruined for the sake of profit as quickly as we can ruin it. If one inhabits the land, then you're in in it for the very long term, and uh, you're not going to use it up. I think that long-term question is uh, critical. The anthropologists, I think, generally would say culture is what a people have learned through time about how to survive in a place. If you say the place is the context within which our culture will grow, our food will come from that place. Now we think about the Mediterranean diet. What is that? And it is that people ate what grew there. It was not like a big plan. That's right. And how we relate to each other and how we eat and how we dance and how we sing through time grows out of a place. In a sense, I think you can depart and maybe you have to depart in place because what really displaces culture is mobility of the extreme. We have a third of Americans move every 10 years. I see more and more how if this is our place, this is the land that we are on, then it will command us if we have respect in forming a culture, in having the first experience of being mutually productive. It seems to me almost all of the distinctive cultures became what they were, not because somebody made them up. They were the words around what we learned and want to communicate and celebrate and pass on through time. What occurs to me then is if we are to depart and arrive in place, it might mean we have to learn to tell a different story about the place if we tell a different story about the place, then the place is reimagined and reconfigured. Yes. And we relate to the place differently. The uh, land story of the empire is the land is designed for speculation and generating surplus. And so we have all these myths surrounding it. The myth of home ownership, that was a privilege given to returning veterans after the war and denied to African-Americans and everybody else. And we said a chicken in every pot. And so the key, and people explain the wealth disparity because of home ownership. To me, in the, in the wilderness, we take land out of speculation. Mm-hmm. That we control the land collectively, knowing we're not going to make a dime from it. 
not a dime. Mm -hmm. We can be productive on it, we can grow things on it, I can build houses on it, but the land itself will be permanently back to the commons pre-enclosure and it's available now. It doesn't make that simple because we're not used to operating collectively. It's about land trusts, common land and common use and co-housing and all that stuff falls in it. But the clearest sentence I heard was we want to bank the land and remove it from speculation. And I agree because I care for the commons and I need a place where I can build a memory. A lot of us don't have a memory. It takes us a while to accumulate the memory to construct a culture. Some of us are lucky that I have a memory of a culture. A lot of people don't. If you're moving every three years, yeah, if we're displacing blacks in Cincinnati every 15 to 20 years for the sake of land development, the only displacement to me is the modern plantation. It's that simple. How can I produce my own well-being if somebody next to me is economically isolated? And that's why the common good is a vague enough thing to hold both these things. I don't see how I can construct a neighborhood if I'm surrounded by economic isolation. I have to welcome in. And the beauty of the economic isolation language is the first step is a welcome. Mm -hmm. It's not funding. It's not a minimum wage. Minimum wage won't do anything. It'll help. I'm not against it. It shifts the whole narrative. Is that if I call people economically isolated, then it leads me somewhere. So when I see a homeless person, I say, what do you know how to do? Mm -hmm. And I would never call them homeless any more than I call myself Howard. When people say, well, here's my project, how does it fit in? It doesn't matter. I know that you're going to do your project of imagining whatever you're doing, your clergy, whatever you're doing, you're going to do it with other people. Yeah, right. As soon as you do it with other people, you're going to say, what's well, going to make this place better? Because Wendell Berry is mentioned again and again in this episode, we thought it would be good to bring his voice through his poetry. As the conversation shifts, here is the first part of Manifesto, the Mad Liberation Front. Love the quick profit, the annual raise, vacation with pay. Want more of everything ready-made. Be afraid to know your neighbors and to die, and you will have a window in your head. Not even your future will be a mystery anymore. Your mind will be punched in a card and shut away in a little drawer. When they want you to buy something, they will call you. When they want you to die for profit, they will let you know. So friends, every day do something that won't compute. Love the Lord, love the world, work for nothing, take all that you have and be poor. Love someone who does not deserve it. Denounce the government and embrace the flag. Hope to live in that free republic for which it stands. Give your approval to all you cannot understand. Praise ignorance, for what man has not encountered, he has not destroyed. Ask the questions that have no answers. Now let's jump ahead as Walter begins discussing debt. So Walter wrote, debt is a secret to control and the ultimate basis for despair. It's about debt, isn't it? I think so. I think it's yeah. about debt. You talk often about how that was handled. Yep in a caring way. Which, which eventually brings you to Jubilee. Jubilee to the, me. The, 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 uh, Every seven the, years. In, in, the, in the new land, the ultimate resolution of debt is Jubilee. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Which and, is, the, I forgive, the, every seven years I forgive the debts of the economically isolated colony. Yep. Of my neighbors. That's right. So 
I may have said to you that, that I've, I've been for a long, long time been talking about Jubilee in local congregations. It, it is the single most resisted thing I talk about. Yeah. The way it's resisted is there isn't any evidence that they ever really did this, is there? Yeah. We, there was a period when banks were limited to interest to 5% in my lifetime. And the banks were right. utilities and money wasn't the point. I just want to make it unimportant and I want to stop collectively measuring it as a measure of well-being. Well-being is what money is one aspect. I was thinking this morning, you know, Maslow was wrong. Maslow's hierarchy of needs was that unless your physical needs are satisfied, social needs won't mean anything, relational needs won't mean anything. You can't, you don't have a shot at self-actualization unless you climb this hierarchy successfully. That is the basis of a consumer culture. Mm -hmm. So in some ways we want to... Invert it. Yeah. Maslow's despair, Maslow's <clears throat> disbelief. Everybody has the capacity for self-actualization. I don't care how hungry you are. So if you took Maslow's pyramid and you made it into a neighborhood circle, what would some of the slices be? How connected am I would be the center. Am I alone or not? Am I doing anything that helps the neighborhood? Can I get most of what I require by walking? Are we raising our children together and using the school building as an aid? Another thing about debt, if you could imagine a world of abundance, there would be no debt. Debt is, in our society, the price you pay for being poor. Where do you see payday loan places, <laughs> right? You don't, you don't see them in wealthy suburbs. You always see them in the place where people have the least money. Right next to the dollar store. Yeah, right. I have a friendly relationship with debt. I don't mind it at all. I just don't want toxic debt. I want to be able to borrow for a decent reason. And, oh, I don't mind owing people money. I just don't want it to be toxic. I want to be able to borrow like a yeah. family, you know. Nobody ever started a business that wasn't funded by friends and family. We, and it's not utopian, this idea of controlling toxic debt, because in my lifetime, I can remember when the Illinois legislature did away with the usury law. In the usury law, nobody could, could charge, no bank could charge more than 5% interest. And that was everywhere. So we have, I think, a, a, a real live history that we could uncover and make much more visible. I would also add in the money conversation that endowments are scarcity monuments. And the idea that I'm going to accumulate enough money and the churches now, you can't touch that money, they're gold. In my departure world, I would put a sunset clause on any accumulation of money. Thomas Jefferson felt that when you die, the money should go to the state. And my favorite story is a local Presbyterian church who calculates if they don't spend any of their endowment, they can survive for 17 and a half years without parishioners. The first story in the wilderness of Exodus 16 is manna, and it is about an abundance of food. Mm -hmm. What it says is, some gathered little, some gathered much, and all had exactly what they needed. needed no debt. That's right. <laughs> and if you took too much, it rotted. That's right. right. That's exactly right. So that's a usury law. It rotted. Right. It rotted and it got worms. <laughs> Moses just pounds it there. Yeah. No endowments. Yeah. The other tradition is gleaning. And so every seven years, we don't pick up the remains after the harvest. We leave it for other people to gather yeah. and benefit. Mm. That's right. 
particularly widows, orphans, and immigrants. Exactly, which is all of us, which is the, the contrast to the terminator gene or seed that if Monsanto sells you a seed with its <laughs> rot-resistant, bug-resistant, you can't use it again. And that's what's killing the land. In a neighborhood, uh, in neighborly agriculture, farmer saves the seed out of his own produce for the next year. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Now they've been taken to court for doing that. <laughs> right. Monsanto right. has taken farmers to court. Here is the rest of Manifesto, the Mad Liberation Front. Invest in the millennium, plant sequoias. Say that your main crop is the forest that you did not plant, that you will not live to harvest. Say that the leaves are harvested when they have rotted into mold. Call that profit. Prophesy such returns. Put your faith in the two inches of hummus that will build under the trees every thousand years. Listen to carrion. Put your ear close and hear the faint chattering of the songs that are to come. Expect the end of the world. Laugh. Laughter is immeasurable. Be joyful, though you have considered all of the facts. So long as women do not go cheap for power, please women more than men. Ask yourself, will this satisfy a woman satisfied to bear a child? Will this disturb the sleep of a woman near to giving birth? Go with your love to the fields. Lie easy in the shade. Rest your head in her lap. Swear allegiance to what is nighest your thoughts. As soon as the generals and the politicos can predict the motions of your mind, lose it. Leave it as a sign to mark the false trail, the way you didn't go. Be like the fox who makes more tracks than necessary, some in the wrong direction. Practice resurrection. Now let's jump back in as the conversation finds its way back to place. Here's John. When the stories about a place, a place has a story. Land does not. There's a big difference between a place and land. Yep. Place has habitation associated with it. We know here what we do, and it's embodied in a story. Welcome to our neighborhood. Let me tell you the story here. I see that so strongly builds affinities and connectedness and, and the growth of mutual commitment. The story yeah. Yeah. It ain't gonna happen without a story. Right. It's a very powerful text in um, Deuteronomy that says, uh, when you come into the good land and you uh, eat grapes from vineyards you did not plant and you drink water from cisterns you did not hew and so on, take heed lest you forget. Affluence produces amnesia. And uh, yeah. the challenge is to bother with an investment of memory when you are so affluent that you can flood your life with commodities. In the extreme, people will own seven homes. So are you saying that surplus diminishes the capacity to build story? That's right. Oh, I think so. It isn't inevitable, but it's certainly tilted. The intended or unintended consequence of, of a consumer culture, <laughs> knowledge culture, philanthropic culture, one is it makes us think we're alone. The second is it makes you think you're crazy. What's the matter with you? Third is it makes you think there's something wrong with you. So to me, self-improvement is an act of violence. <laughs> and it's a large industry. And I supported it and benefited from it. Talking about coming into the commons. You need to care about something. And you will find out that you're not alone. 
and you're not crazy, <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with it. Nothing wrong with it. And once I discover it, then you and I can create anything we want. And it doesn't have a neighborhood's a concept, it's a construct. I don't know, I live in a neighborhood next to other neighborhoods in a city, a world. Maybe some people don't like well, It's not about a neighborhood, it's about a neighborliness. And I think that's the invitation. Otherwise, you will never find meaning. You'll be busy and productive and successful, and your mother will think you did great. <laughs> All right? But if you want some point to find meaning, and that's why our audience is people who've already decided that meaning matters. That's why the faith community is beautiful, the neighborhood activism committee, the library camp, there are no more committed people. All of these people have community buildings somewhere in their definition, maybe a site, and we're foolish in how we go about it. Foolish, we think we can do it digitally, we think we can do it by advertising, we can do it by email. But John says, John is a sensualist, do it through voice. You know, you're, you spent your life interpreting one book. I was uh, in this big Presbyterian church Sunday. The text led me to talk about justice questions, which I wanted to do. And I said, it's the business of the church. And this pastor, who had been the pastor of this big church for 17 years, afterward, he said, that's so great. They all said, that's so great. Then he said, it never occurred to him that he ought to talk about public issues. And this church has got movers and shakers in it. He had never understood that that was his work. So much incredible education to do to help pastors see what has been entrusted to them, not only to them, but to them. Oh, I keep reminding them that they have they have uh, utterly urgent vocation if they have the courage for such a vocation. Otherwise, you just become <coughs> chaplains for the well, consumers. I like chaplains for consumers. Yeah. And I think community building has gotten a bad name. I think people confused it with anger. Yep, that's right. With yes. anger yeah. organizing. Yeah. Yep. With protest in the streets, with tearing up your, your right. world. And yep. uh, the community yep. has paid a price for that. Yes. yes. I think, uh, John, I think chaplains of consumers just say thoughts and prayers. Thoughts and prayers. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's <laughs> yeah, an amazing movement, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I don't want your thoughts. That's right. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about the work of Walter, Peter, and John, as well as the Common Good Collective at commongood.cc. The Common Good is hosted by me, Rabbi Miriam Turlenchamp, and produced by Joey Taylor with music from Jeff Gorman. See you next week for the final episode of Season 3.